0: Today on episode number four hundred and seven of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Unpacking Resilience and Grief with Chinasa Eloway, Laura Howard, and Esti Jordan. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm joined today on Teaching in Higher Ed with three guests. Chanasa Eloway, Laura Howard, and Esti Jordan. Dr. Laura Howard is a lecturer and educational developer in the English department at Kennesaw State University, where she develops and supports graduate teaching assistants. Dr. Howard also serves as the technology coordinator in her department, which includes supporting faculty teaching with technology. Her interests in educational development began in a faculty learning community, She enjoys the collaborative nature of this work, especially the endless opportunities to learn and grow. Dr. Tanasa Eloy is an associate professor of educational leadership and higher education at Kennesaw State University. She received her doctorate in educational leadership from Clemson University with a certificate in policy studies. She received her M.Ed. in educational leadership from Valdosta State University and her bachelor's in psychology from the University of Georgia. Her research focuses on grief leadership, trauma-informed leadership practices in organizational settings, and support for the health and well-being of historically marginalized and underrepresented faculty, staff, and students across the P-20 continuum. Dr. Eloy runs the research lab for the study of emotional intelligence— leadership effectiveness, and well-being of educational leaders. Dr. Eloy also serves as a faculty success coach for the KSU Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. Dr. Esty Jordan leads the faculty success team at the Kennesaw State University Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. She is also a professor of political science. Her work supports faculty in their pursuit of success, she spends most of her time coaching faculty and campus leaders, facilitating webinars, and directing orientations, institutes, and retreats. Esti's passion is helping academics flourish based on the research that flourishing organizations are comprised of flourishing individuals. Chanasa, Laura, and Esti, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. I'm grateful for your individual and collective research and work and heart around the topic of grief and resiliency, and I'd just love to have us start out with just sort of what have you been hearing about this word, idea, concept of resilience, and Chanasa, why don't we start with you?
1: Sure. You know, it's really interesting that in this particular time, the term resilience is still being used to really describe how we should be navigating the current times that we've been in. So as we've been in conversation, one quote that's really, really um, been indicative to some of the conversations we've been having is from a programmer and a writer. Her name is Zandasha Brown, and she talks about things that she dreams of. Right. And when we talked about this quote, I'm going to share it briefly. It really hit home for us as we think about this current moment in time that we're navigating. And so Zandasha writes that I dream of never being called resilient again in my life. I am exhausted by strength. I want support. I want softness. I want ease. I want to be amongst kin, not patted on the back for how well I take a hit or for how many. And I cannot begin to tell you how much that quote resonated with us when we read that and began our own quest to do more research around resiliency and grief, especially as it pertains to our respective context that we're working in. If we think about what we've navigated these past two and a half, almost three years now, with the offset of the pandemic, when resilience is used to describe that, it's often in this context seen as being out of touch in a lot of ways because people are literally grieving. They're hurting. They're beside themselves as we kind of think about what our world looks like today and what we would hope it would look like tomorrow, but we're not there. And so resilience is, uh, in a lot of ways, an incongruent term to describe our lived experiences right now.
2: I would agree with with Chinasa there. I think that it's certainly what I've been hearing from, from colleagues and from students around this idea of resilience. We've talked about together how early in the pandemic, in particular, we really... You know, heard educators and, and people from all professions really seize on this idea of resilience and, like, this. Okay, let's cling to certain values and traditions as much as possible in the name of normalcy and and keeping it together during these difficult times. And I think what what we've realized and what we've heard from those we've talked to about our work is that not only is that not possible, it wasn't possible then. It's it's certainly not possible now, even as We're seeing changes, you know, around pandemic-related, for example, issues like, you know, mask mandates changing, things like that. It's still not really possible, and it might not even have been that great in the first place. And so this idea of integrating care into the work that we do as educational developers, but also as teachers, as colleagues, becomes more and more important
0: Yeah, I I was fortunate to be able to participate in a workshop that the three of you facilitated. And we do have in the show notes a link to this grief and resiliency workbook, which is such a great document to look through either individually or with colleagues. So thank you so much for your gift that you've given to us. But I recall just, you know, I I have conversations like this almost every week, sometimes two a week. And so we skip a week. But I mean, this this is a regular set of conversations I'm in. But something about the way that you got us asking the question just really brought up a visceral, maybe that's not the right word, but just a, a really strong reaction to me. You, you gave me permission to name things that I feel like I've been told, not specifically at my institution. I don't want to be speaking about people who aren't here to defend themselves, but just I just feel this overwhelming sense that we're not allowed to say the quiet parts out loud, you know, that it's, and and so much of what I took away, you each have shared about, and Esty, I'm sure you have some to add to this too, but just what, what I really took away, and I'm thankful to the three of you for, is just what would be a normal response, you know, just, just like a normal response to these kinds of things might be Anger, fear, sadness, and it's like being told through lots of different channels and echoing that it's not okay to have what would be normal human reactions to these sorts of things. And to me, the exhaustion that comes from that of thinking I'm supposed to be showing up in ways that are inauthentic to me, that's really a lot of what the work is And that quote is just so so beautiful i dream of never being called resilient again it's like giving people permission to live out their actual reality and not have to fake it you know cuz telling people to buck it up you know buck up just you know is is um i don't know it's not been helpful to me but i really felt a strong emotional reaction what have you seen as you've facilitated other workshops like this and done workshops on this kind of thing what how is my reaction to it Similar or dissimilar to other colleagues that you've worked with?
3: Yeah, I think it's very similar. Um, it may actually makes me think about an article I read in January in the Chronicle of Higher Education by McClure, um, and I'll share the link with you at the end of this. But it was called "The Great Faculty Disengagement," and he was talking, or they were talking about what we're seeing is that faculty are showing up. But not really being there, you know, they're engaged. I mean, they're there, but they're doing as little as possible to meet expectations. And I think that's sort of indicative of your sentiment of feeling like, oh, we almost need permission to not have to be resilient, you know? Things are supposed to be supposedly back to normal and we're not back to normal. And so as we've done this, um, shared this work with others, there's just this gratitude and sort of this outpouring that comes as a result of giving permission, kind of feeling like they have permission to acknowledge that we aren't resilient. I mean, I'm exhausted. I think everyone in this room is exhausted. (laughs) And so, you know, here we are, we're two and a half years in, we're still exhausted. And so it's better to just be in reality where people actually are.
2: I think being in that grief, space is really important for people. And Bonnie, when you were speaking, I mean, those are definitely the feelings that you're describing in reaction to everything that has happened during these past couple of years. And I think you you asked if if your response was quote unquote normal, what we're hearing from other people. And I would say definitely yes. In fact, we've been so glad that the pandemic dirty words activity in particular seems to really have resonated with people. And I just want to circle back to this, this agency and power that people are able to access through sharing their own stories. That's the activity especially that people seem to have really enjoyed that. You mentioned our talk um, earlier, our workshop that we did at a conference earlier. And we did this activity where people identified pandemic dirty words and resilience was certainly one of them. There were others, everybody can kind of share their favorites, pivot, new normal, those kinds of things were upsetting to to people. And so we just think that the in this case, language is definitely power, you, you know, let's move away from this idea of resilience as kind of a blanket emotion to throw over all the different things that we're feeling now and call it what it is, which is, which is grief, which is anger and, and disappointment and many times and just having to rethink our expectations of our of ourselves and our institutions and all of those different factors. And if it's okay with the group, I'll quickly just read a quote that kind of really, for me, encapsulates so much of what what we're all feeling, have been feeling, and what I've just mentioned, which it comes from Hannah McGregor and her blog post on Hook and I called What are, Are We Talking About When We Talk About Care? About halfway through the post, she says, In this moment of global and unequally shared crisis, the idea that intellectuals and experts need to model disinterestedness or unemotional objectivity is crumbling around us. Academics insisting on a business as usual adherence to traditional notions of rigor look more and more out of touch. In the spaces of the university, our classrooms and our conferences and our associations, calls for care are being sounded everywhere. Those of us who teach at universities and colleges are suddenly unavoidably being reminded of our students' humanity and our own in the context of institutions that are invested in us becoming a little less human so we can be a little more efficient and i think that's something that we really want to keep at the forefront of this work is is just seeing how we can proceed in light of everything that's happened with more care going forward mm, that's
0: such a such a beautiful a beautiful example and that's a gorgeous piece of writing i I'd love to have each of you share maybe what have been some of your pandemic dirty words that have shown up a lot for you that that get that, that visceral reaction from you.
1: Sure. I'll, I'll kick us off by just saying, you know, when I've seen words such as, you know, we're in high flex mode or embrace the unknown or the uncertain, you know, things around those contexts. I think in a lot of ways, again, it negates the fact that people are saying things from an out of touch perspective. If we are, Really honest with ourselves, we we have to acknowledge the fact that people have experienced various types of loss throughout this entire season that we've been in this pandemic and before that, um, I think about the loss of normalcy, the loss of relationships, the loss of I guess our belief in in leaders or how our institutions once were, and to be frank, people are exhausted. So when, when I hear high flex or or to build back better. I think it it really discounts the fact that people are operating from an empty cup right now. They are utterly exhausted. There's extreme compassion fatigue. There's so many things happening around the world um, that are really tapping into reserves that we didn't even know were present. And so in a lot of ways, we're trying to make sense of an ever changing world with no tools really readily available right now, because everything is drawing at our attention from multiple vantage points. And so those are the words that come to the fore for me as I think through that.
3: Mm, thank you. I don't have any additional ones. To the ones that were already said. Yeah.
0: Is there any one that stands out to you where you remember hearing it for the first time and doing one of those what <laughs> kind of looks of, or make made you really have an, a strong emotional anger?
3: For me, it was back to normal. Yeah. But, the beginning of this year when I'm a faculty coach. That's one of the big things I do. And I know people aren't back to normal.
0: Yeah. And Laura, you talked a little bit earlier about what is this normal that we speak of? Like, is that really what we should be aspiring to back to normal? What are some of the concerns to you, Laura, that rise up when you think about someone prescribing that the quote unquote cure here is getting back to this, this, Past normal yeah. state. What are some of the themes that you that draw up in you when you think about that?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's incredible. A great question, Bonnie, and just incredibly problematic. I think there have the the pandemic and the social unrest and the things that that have been happening. The um racial reckoning. I think all of these things point to the fact that that normal is, is not good. It's not good for us. It's not good for our students. There are new opportunities here to move in directions that are more inclusive, more equitable. And that's what I really think we need to be focused on in this moment as we move forward or as we continue on. It, it's not about getting back to things weren't so great um, necessarily for for groups of people before. And so I think just keeping that that in mind has really got to be key. One thing, I can give you a specific example of something I've seen in my, um, my own department, for example, we have continued to have virtual meetings for our faculty meetings and for our committee meetings. And I I think that's a really positive thing that's come out of all of this. It's so much easier for faculty with disabilities. It's so much easier for faculty who want to be involved in different groups, but, you know, might be teaching, for example, a part time faculty member who is in, we kind of have like a designated block that we keep open for department meetings. And committee meetings, but part-time faculty are often teaching during the times that departments may hold for department meetings and committee meetings, and so they're not able to be, to be part of things. When we have virtual meetings, they can be recorded. They can be easily rescheduled and moved if need be. More people can attend. It's better for the environment not to have cars on the road. It's it's safer for people. It's better for people with disabilities. And so I think this is just a, a really good thing that, that's come out of all of this that we've seen that wasn't normal before, but now, you know, it's something that's that's happening as a result of this that's better for everybody. And so I think just being really thoughtful and intentional about what we, we want to see ushered Back in, it w- wasn't really working in the first place. Was that really coming from a culture of care? Because now, you know, we we see the real need. I think for having that culture and care, ba- culture of care baked in to our institutions.
0: Tanassa, one of the dirty words that you brought up or or, or you mentioned is high flex. And that tends to be one of those words that means so many different things to so many people that I want to make sure we kind of know what we're talking about here. And I know some of that has to do with kind of flexibility. And um, but to tell me a little bit about what your definition of high flex means and why it sort of brings up that, you know, reaction in you.
1: Sure. You know, for me, when I say high flex, I'm specifically talking about having Extreme levels of high flexibility to accommodate the needs of uh, your students and/or colleagues on campus. It brings up a lot of angst for me in this context because I know, in a lot of ways, we are being asked to do things that aren't being offered to us at the same time. So, as a faculty member, as a colleague on campus, we're being asked to bend over backwards, we're being asked to risk it all, come on campus, teach in person, do all the things. But then, when we need a little bit of flexibility, when Our kids are sick, or if we are not able to come because we're not well, or we have an emergency, then we're looked at as not being a team player. So where's the high flexibility when it's time for our needs or our crisis that comes up, right? And I think in a lot of ways, that's where when we talk about having a culture of care, we have to remember how important it is to close the care loop. So it's one thing to care for your students. It's one thing to care for your staff members, your community members. But what about those who are essential to your daily operations? How are you closing the loop to make sure that they too feel included when you're saying, well, we need to be highly flexible. Also make sure that you're mindful of the various needs that are arising in this current context that we've all been navigating.
0: Mm, Yeah, thank you for that. So one of the questions when we start talking about the pandemic dirty words, what we've been asked to do, we've been asked to respond in ways that are not That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) I was going to say appropriate. I mean, it's just like it's authentic. Thank you. That's the word. Yeah. Yeah. They're not really authentic to the experience. So when you talk about a culture of care, we wish, of course, that our organizations were getting better at this. But sadly, we can't wait until that gets figured out. Some of this we do need to start to have it. Bubble up a little bit within us, whether within us means as individuals or within us as a community of people who want to gather and begin to create change, not wait for it. So what are some of the ways? Let's start small and then maybe we could get a little bigger, but let's start small with ways that we might cultivate a... Sense of care. I know one of these is having to do with setting boundaries, but maybe we can start with boundaries. And I think we're doing bubble baths today. Is that right? Are we? Are we bubble. Baths? Kidding about the bubble baths. Let <laughs> so, <him> go. <laughs> yeah. So actually, let's let's start there. Um, would one of you share just about the less authentic self care that gets prescribed to us? You know, if you can fix it all with um, one of the one of the problematic types of self care that you're seeing bubbled up here. Bubble. Get it? What I just did there with the pun? Okay.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I think a bubble bath is not going to solve our modern day problems right now. I mean, it's bigger than that. Going to get a scoop of ice cream is not going to do it either. It's not the fix. I think people want to know that they are seen, valued, and heard. And I think in a lot of ways, um, when we talk about building care into the fabric of our organizations, people want to know that you see them. They want to know that you actually care. And caring may look different, right? It may mean that if they have an emergency, as we've all been in this current context and they need to run and go get their kid because their school is closed down, that you either A, step up and cover the class or B, make other concessions at the time. It means that if somebody's lost someone during this time that you don't expect for them to jump back into full throttle and get back to business like nothing happened, it means that you take the time to acknowledge their loss, that you sit with them, even if you're silent and listen to what they have to say. It means that you're intentional about the relationships and actually caring about your people, because we know that in a lot of ways, people, it's it's really easy to be mission focused, but you have to realize that if you are not focused on the people that drive your mission, it's still going to fail. So you have to really be intentional about pouring in to your employees and your colleagues so that they can continue to thrive. And in turn, it'll still benefit the institution on the back end.
2: And I think collaborative decision-making can be really helpful here, too, when you're working with colleagues or when you're working with students, you know, asking people to weigh in on or or talk up front about what their needs are during the process of, of whatever you're working on. I'm thinking specifically about something that happened this week with someone I was working with, and we were kind of reshaping the guidelines, kind of expectations for some work we were doing together, and it was really effective for me to write down what I needed from the interaction and then have that person write down what they needed and kind of compare notes and see together how we could make you know we had basically something happened that that changed the shape of what we were doing that changed the nature of it and we needed to decide together how to move forward in this particular instance i was the one kind of in the position of of authority or or power. And so it was really important for me not to just be like, okay, this is what I think this person should do, especially because in this case, there have been some just unexpected things happen and some emotionally challenging things happen. And I really needed the person to weigh in and talk about what was realistic for them. And I think the more that people can do that, ask those questions and just allow people to, to say what they need to negotiate expectations with one another. I think that can be it may be a larger a larger step we can take and in terms of just the the smaller day-to-day things, I mean just seeing about yourself, for a minute is really, really important. You know, we we've all heard kind of the cliche of put your own oxygen mask on first. I hate to to bring a cliche into it since we are trying to move on from certain cliches in our discussion, but I do think that's so important. Like we can't show up for our students, our colleagues, or our families if we're not doing these things. And and as you no, Bonnie, it's not a bubble bath. It's um, truly setting boundaries. Like I'm not going to work all weekend (laughs) because I need to breathe. You know, I know Tanasa, if it's okay to mention you, you're good about this. You've said to me before, Sunday's family period. Like I don't for
1: the weekend, right? After 5 PM on Friday, I, I shut it down. I don't connect my phone to my email to my phone. Mm -hmm. Those boundaries are key. Because yeah. at the end of the day, you, you do have to realize, I think one thing if we gain anything from this pandemic and the past couple of years is that the things that are important have risen to the fore. Gone are the days that people are willing to sacrifice it all for their position. They realize that they want more. And I think that's mm-hmm. indicative of what we're seeing with the great resignation right now. People are leaving in droves because they realize that they want more, they deserve more, and they're going after more. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so I think in a lot of ways, we have the opportunity now to really begin to reimagine what can higher education look like if we really do center those that, we, that work with us and those that we serve in a more holistic way, a, a, apart from seeking enrollment numbers and all that stuff is important, right? But how can we make sure that we, again, are supporting and caring for others?
0: When I was in undergrad, which was many moons ago, <laughs> I took a sociology of death class And that's one of those that I still, I probably think about that maybe even on a weekly basis. It struck me that much. Every week they would have different guest speakers come in who were going through different types of grief. And one that was really memorable to me was a man who had lost his son. I believe it was a car accident. And the number of people who would try to fix this man and his grief because his grief you realize it's actually a pretty selfish thing when we're not able to sit with someone who's grieving your grief is making me feel uncomfortable could you not please do that so let me try to fix you and whether that comes from a type of a religious belief don't feel bad there in heaven now is one that you know is a trope that comes up quite often but it's not restricted just to religious types of expressions of attempted comfort which is really disguised grief, discomfort with someone else's grief. But you're reminding me that I I saw how bad people were at it just in general, in a personal context. But now I've seen it showing up in organizational context. Lori, you said it earlier, we don't sit well with people. And there are no easy fixes to, you know, if you could just follow the rules and get everybody else to follow the rules that are constantly changing and aren't often made with a firm enough appreciation of a context in which they're, they're you know, whatever edicts are being are being made. So I don't know, Esty, if you have anything that you'd like to add just in terms of us, our, our tendency to want to have this quick fix, you know, could you get yourself together? And, and yet, because because as you know, e- those of us that are trying to do this better, there still is not going to be a quick fix. There's no quick little coupon I can give you, or <laughs> you know, a a little um pat on the head that's gonna that there are there just it's just this isn't possible. So we have to be better about how do we sit with others. So yeah, Esty, sorry. <laughs> Love to hear you share as well.
3: You got ask me about the quick fix. And I think that that's where this thinking about it in terms of grief is really, really helpful. There's no quick fix to grief, right? And so it helps to realize that everyone is going to be in a, uh, their own personal place in response to what we've been through and are continuing to go through. And so, you know, with Kubler-Ross grief cycle, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and meaning-making, we're going to be going in between all of those phases at different times. And so there's no fixing that. It takes time. It takes giving space to people. I've been thinking a lot about space lately, and how important it is to give space to for people, for their own sort of power to come through, their own voice to come through, their own anger
2: to come through, you know, to not be afraid of it. I see you reminded me of something when you when you were talking about the grief cycle and the fact that it's nonlinear and we go back and forth. I was just thinking about my daughter said to me the other night, I was tucking her in for bed. And she said, Mom, I don't remember before the pandemic. Mm. And I felt like I had been plunged back to like, the first day. I mean, it just did something to me, the fact that, you know, I've been thinking so much about, you know, professionally, how do we navigate this? And personally, like, you know, we're doing okay. And, you know, trying to work together as a family through all the challenges that's presented. And then when, when a little kid looks at you and says, I just don't remember before. And you realize how powerless you kind of are in light of all of this. It was like that grief. It was just like a wave. And so I don't really know exactly where that fits, but just the fact that we're we're entering maybe a new phase at least of the pandemic part, it just all of this stuff is still so important uh, to recognize that people you know are still struggling and they are just really at different we're not all at the acceptance or meaning making phase. And so you know, how can institutions, how can educational developers keep that in the forefront of their mind?
3: I think, too, it's important to realize that caregivers in particular, and I I think faculty are in that space because we are caring for our students in certain ways. Educational developers are caregivers. We are caring in certain ways for our faculty. And so for caregivers, there tend to be, I think, lagged effects because you're so busy caring that you don't realize where you are emotionally and what you need until time passes. And I found that with me, I actually kind of felt in my very privileged space that I was flourishing during the pandemic. And now that things are easing up a bit, I'm sort of crashing. And I think it's that lagged effect. And I don't think I'm alone in that.
1: Yeah. And I want to so share just from an intersectional way. perspective, right? That, even the types of grief that we've experienced depend on the different dimensions of our identity as well. And, and I'll speak for myself as a, as a Black woman here, as a professor as well, in that privileged position that navigating 2020 on specifically has been really, really difficult, not only for myself, but as I talk to colleagues colleagues in the field at large who've had to navigate the context of showing up to work with the mask on after having witnessed countless murders happened on TV, to be frank, and then being expected to jump on you know, initiatives and things like that to spearhead DEI. But then we see about a year or two later, again, the attacks on those very same efforts that were being put into place years ago. There's something to be said here about the type of loss of trust, especially as it pertains to, well, we thought you were... Moving, we were moving in this direction, but now actions are speaking loud in the words at this point. And so um, there's that intersectional component of the grief that we're seeing take place right now, both personally and then professionally in the workplace. And I think from a positionality of loss, when we talk about grief for death and dying in the workplace, you know, at times that's seen as very taboo. Um, nobody wants to come to work and be sad all day, right? So hence, they try to push it to the corner or they acknowledge it when you first come. But In a lot of ways, we have to understand that when when you're grieving, you don't just put on your grieving cap when you walk out the door. When you come in the office, that your grief sits with you. And I think when we think about how do we move forward in this context where we are able to acknowledge and then also provide spaces, we have to be come more comfortable with talking about grief in our workplaces. We can't let it be something that is just done when a situation happens. We should be more intentional about cultivating events and programming and workshops and different types of support so that people do feel that they have the types of resources they need on campus and beyond.
0: This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And my first one is I'd love to invite people to go download the grief handbook that is linked to in the show notes and either go through it yourself or even better. I think find some colleagues that you trust can have the conversations and not try to fix each other, but sit with sit alongside one another, I think would be so helpful and one of the resources that is linked to in there, I, I went on just a wonderful set of rabbit trails going and exploring the resources is a video by Trisha Hersey. I don't know if it's linked to directly, but I got there through the rabbit trail. Um, and it's called Rest Life. And it's just a beautiful thing. Some of the words that each of you shared earlier, I think, give me a little bit of a new confidence to both name how I'm experiencing, but also to hope in a way for something that is new, that's not being prescribed to me in an unhelpful way. If that makes it, it gives me like a sense of confidence to go, this could be better, but not in the way that they're telling you it could be better. And and it helps me when I when I resonate or I listen to the words, it helps me think about, you know, being able to set better boundaries for myself uh, around that. So it's just really helpful. But I know, I know, Tanasa, you actually have some things to, related and unrelated to share that that come out of your work as well. So Tanessa, I'll pass it over to you next.
1: Sure. It's funny you mentioned Trisha uh, Hershey's work because I follow her work and am so excited to just know that her work exists. Um, Trisha Hershey's the founder of the Nat ministry, and she really advocates for the fact that rest is a form of resistance. And so pushing against these notions of the capitalistic structures that we all live and work in each and every day and to really embrace rest, to learn it as a form of life and to embrace that wholeheartedly is something that I strive to do each and every day because I know in this context where we're, where this uh, resiliency narrative is being peddled, it's really important to push back against that and take time to rest. Another resource that I will offer is from Nader Glover-Tawab. She wrote a book last year called Set Boundaries, Finding Peace. I think in this context, when we're talking about resilience, it's really important for us to think about how do we set boundaries, not only with our work, but then in other relationships as well. So looking for ways to thrive personally, professionally, and overall so that we can continue to navigate the times that we're in. There's just so much that's happening right now. If there ever were a time to really be intentional about taking care of ourselves and setting appropriate boundaries, it's now.
0: All right. And Laura, what do you have to recommend for us today?
2: Yeah, so a couple of things that have been really eye-opening to me during this time. One is the book Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And this is by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. This book was actually published, I believe, in 2019. So before before the pandemic, but it talks very much about being able to move through your emotions so that you don't become stuck and them. That is a different thing than saying, get over it. That is a different thing than saying, come on, just, just be resilient. It, it what it's really about is, is feeling them, acknowledging them, naming them, and then looking at the science as well that connects, you know, that talks about the connection between our mind and our body and doing intentional, specific things to remove stress from our body. That is self-care and it's, it's not bubble baths either. It's, exercise, it's meditation, it's writing, it's getting things out. It, it's a really great, great read and really relevant here. There's also a TED talk by Dr. Sandra Smith, the seven types of rest that every person needs. She wrote a book as well on this. There is a spiritual component. So that may be appealing for some folks as well, but she's talking about all, how all rest is not the same and making sure that there's a balance, um, the types of rest that you're permitting yourself in your life, you know, so that you can feel better and more balanced. Then I just want to add one thing, which is kind of new to me just in the last few days, but I've been turning it over in my head over and again. It's the idea of a reverse bucket list. I am occasionally an obsessive list maker. I enjoy listing things out. And I, I think a lot about this concept of the bucket list, you hear people say to like they have, oh, I want to do 40 things by 40 or 50 things by 50, or, or the idea of a lifelong bucket list, really, like, these are the things that I know I want to do. This idea of the reverse bucket list is actually to the total opposite, writing down the things you've already done, that brought you great joy. And I heard it, um, or, or read it referred to in one um, article I was reading on this as a nostalgia playlist that reflecting, it's really an exercise in gratitude, that reflecting on the things that you've already achieved puts the emphasis on your own success and, and agency and power and takes away this idea that you're somehow not measuring up. And so I think that can be interesting from a self-care perspective, but it might be as simple, maybe we need Maybe we need to make a reverse bucket list for COVID-19 and and for the past two years, you know, look what I did or look what I accomplished during this time, even if it was just like holding down the fort, like that is a great thing to put on your your list. And so I think valuing things in in a different way instead of giving yourself an endless to-do list is important. And I just want to just tag onto that a little bit to say that when I first heard this concept reverse bucket list I didn't get it and what I actually thought it was was making a list of stuff I don't want to do anymore (laughs) and it turns out that's not what a reverse bucket list is but I actually think that could be just as valuable like making a list of things that yeah I'm just I I, I'm done with that (laughs) like I'm done with trying to to fit into a, a, a certain mold or this is not making my life easier or I don't know I'm I I trained my 10 year old to do all of her own laundry. Like, I just kind of hit a point where I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I do laundry for a lot of other people. So you're old enough to do your own, like making a list of things maybe we don't want to tie up our time could also help us find, find some joy and find some peace.
0: Yeah. On a related note, there's making a list to celebrate the things you've said no to back to setting healthy boundaries.
2: (laughs) That's a great idea. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That could be like a four-part activity that we could integrate at some
0: point. (laughs) Oh, I love
2: it. I love it. Esty, what do you have to share with us
3: today? First is um, a couple of books by Donna Hicks, who writes about dignity. She's written one about dignity and its role in conflict resolution. She's written another one on leading with dignity, And I first heard about this from my colleague, my former colleague, Joe Bach um, at Kennesaw State University, and he uh, brought it up in a webinar I attended. And, you know, it's really resonated with me because she talks about these 10 essential elements of dignity, acceptance of identity, inclusion, safety, acknowledgement, recognition, fairness, benefit of the doubt understanding, independence, and accountability. And these are all things we need to apply to ourselves. In her work, she's talking about it in terms of the dignity that we make sure that we confer to others and give to others. But in our context, especially as academics who are overachievers, and we are always pushing the boundary about what's even physically, mentally possible to accomplish we always want to accomplish I, that next great thing i mean i'll speak for myself i got tenure and then i started six new research projects like within a couple of months it's just how we're wired i think most of us and so it's important to think about our norms and our culture of behavior and overwork and productivity at the expense of self-care and to treat ourselves with dignity to recognize our needs and our wants, the things that we just aren't going to do anymore, Laura. You know, it's important to treat ourselves with fairness. Give, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. If I'm tired, well, maybe I need to rest. <laughs> anyway, so that's a big one for me is this dignity work applied to ourselves. And the second one is the book that came out I think about six months ago now, that You Are Your Best Thing, And it is a collaborative work by Tarana Burke and Brene Brown. It's an anthology about the Black experience of vulnerability and shame resilience. And there's so much in there in terms of just learning and listening and seeing. But also for me that I took for myself, they talk about joy and joy is an act of resilience and that resonated with me so much, based on the stories I've heard from my colleagues during these times, my own experience, that we may this may have been a really difficult time and still is, and we're struggling. But it's through community, through support, through showing up for each other and caring each other that we can create space for reclaiming that joy and claiming that right to joy.
1: Mm,
0: thank you so much. Thanks to all three of you for today's conversation and for the way that you have both been so comforting, but also challenging. You know, this this can get better, but not the way people are telling us that it can. And I just so appreciate your work. And Janasa, you actually had mentioned some research that that's being done. So I know this is not like... <laughs> Uh, there's gonna be more to come in terms of getting to draw from the work that you're doing. So just thanks you thanks so much for being here today, but also just for your continued work in this area.
1: Absolutely. We're excited. Thank you for having
3: us, Bonnie. We appreciate it.
0: Thanks once again to Chanasa Loway, Laura Howard, and Esti Jordan for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed number 407. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to have the show notes show up in your inbox each week from the most recent episode, along with some additional recommendations and related episodes that don't show up in those show notes, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and you can subscribe to the weekly update. And thanks for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. Would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode on Twitter. I'm at Bonnie, B-O-N-N-I, 208. And I'd also love to hear from you as a reply to the weekly update if you subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.